you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. He was 25 and had already captured the hearts of Russia with his novel, Poor Folk. Fame quickly went to his head. He drank immoderately and partied wildly. He carelessly criticized the Tsarist regime. You did not do that in Tsarist Russia. He was arrested in St. Petersburg and sentenced to death by the firing squad, along with several other descendants, uh, dissidents. It was a cold December morning. Dressed in a white execution gown, he was led to the wall of the prison courtyard with the others. Blindfolded, he waited for the last sound he would hear, the crack of a pistol echoing off the prison walls. Instead, he heard fast-paced footsteps, then the announcement that the Tsar had commuted his sentence to 10 years of hard labor. So intense was that moment that he suffered an epileptic seizure, something he would live with the rest of his life. In that Siberian prison, Fyodor Dostoevsky was allowed only a New Testament to read. There he discovered something more wonderful, more true than his socialistic ideals. He met Christ, and his heart was changed. Upon leaving prison, he wrote to a friend who had helped him grow in Christ. To believe that there is nothing more beautiful, more profound, more sympathetic, more reasonable, more manly, and more perfect than Christ... And not only is there nothing, but I tell myself with jealous love that there can be nothing. Besides, if anyone proved to me that Christ was outside the truth, and it really was so that the truth was outside Christ, then I would prefer to remain with Christ than with the truth. Dostoevsky returned to civilian life shortly after. He wrote feverishly and produced his prison memories, The House of the Dead, and then Crime and Punishment followed by many other major works. Yet his church attendance was sporadic, and he never grew as a Christian. He neglected Bible study and the fellowship of other believers. No Christian took him under his wing to disciple him. He began to drink. He gambled. Excessive drinking and compulsive gambling unraveled his life so that he died penniless and wasted. He felt prison with his flame lit for Christ and died with nothing more than smoldering embers. The tragedy of Fyodor Dostoevsky is not so much what he became, but what he could have become for Christ. In the words of the poet, of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. You see, brothers and sisters, one of the greatest tragedies of our day and of all time since the beginning of mankind is the relationship of God that he establishes with man being severed by sin and rebellion. Many a follower of God from the, turn from the right path and disavow the very thing they claim to believe. They've walked away from the God they claim to have served and loved. They are left without others to help them get back on the right track. As faithful followers of God, we do our part and our best to come alongside and encourage the wayward son or daughter to come home. But what if many of our attempts are in vain because we've misrepresented the God we are sharing with others? You see, the God in Malachi that promises to send a messenger who will prepare the way also promises that others will be dealt with judgment. He continues in calling other things to their attention. 
But before he does so, he describes who he is once again. In Malachi 3, verse 6, we read this. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. The first thing to see here is the realization that God is God. He is Lord. The word is Yahweh, I am. This phrase is repeated throughout the Old Testament as a reminder to the nation of Israel. In Isaiah 42, 8 through 9, we read the following. I am the Lord, that is my name. In my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Dropping down to Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 7, it says this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. What we see here is God will not share his glory with anyone else. God will not give anyone else the status that he alone deserves, else he is no longer God. What he says will happen will certainly come to pass. That is why it's so important to not simply dismiss and rewrite the promises to the nation of Israel as though they've been reappropriated to the church in the New Testament era. What God has promised them, he will deliver on. When God promises the nation of Israel that a land will be theirs, he means it. And it will come to pass. Those that dismiss it are argue against the spirit, specific promises that are laid out in the word of God. Taking those promises, appropriating them to the church by spiritualizing the literal is what has led to superiority complex among many believers today. Many believers today unwittingly and unknowingly are practicing the very thing that Paul said don't you dare do. In Romans 11 verses 19 through 25, here's what Paul says. He's talking to the church, believers in Rome. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You see, what's going on today in many Christian homes, 
many churches is that when we read the Bible and we see what God promises Israel, many are dismissing those promises pertaining to the nation of Israel today. Many are claiming that those are now reappropriated to the church. Many are spiritualizing a literal land promise that is promised to the people of Israel. The reality is we as believers need to be reminded that in sending his son, the father also, also tells us that Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is not Lord, believer, he's not worthy of our worship, and he is less. In 2 John 1, verse 3, we read, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. You see, it's important for us as believers to be reminded that the God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. There's an important warning that Jude writes concerning the lack of respect for the lordship of Christ in unbelief. In fact, in Jude 1, verses 3 through 5, we read the following. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I want you to notice the connection to the Old Testament and a link to the nation of Israel, how God the Lord dealt with those that did not believe. And he went after those that went with other gods in rebellion. You see, God is declaring to the nation of Israel as he's speaking through his prophet Malachi that I am the Lord. I am sovereign. Then he speaks specifically to his immutability. I do not change. To everyone that claims that God has changed from the Old Testament to the New, they are missing the bigger picture and focus only on certain details. I know you and I have heard it from other Christians, right? The Christians that only read the New Testament, that know nothing of the Old. God changed from the Old Testament. He was a God that just struck down people, and the New Testament, God is all love. Well, that's not an accurate picture of God at all. And that comes from people that do not read the Word of God completely, which is one of the reasons why Pastor Roman tries to encourage you to read the whole Bible, not just snippets. Because both the Old and New Testament speak of God's dealings with the following. It says that God is both long-suffering and patient. It speaks to God being holy and just. Both the Old and the New Testament declares this, believer. It speaks to God being gracious and loving. It speaks to his mercy and judgment. Both are mentioned in both the New and the, and the Old Testament. It speaks to blessing and cursing. 
In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus becomes the curse for us. To emphasize that God is the same, let's take a look at a text that many of us are familiar with. You probably have heard this quoted in church many times. But I think sometimes we miss the greater meaning in the text. In Hebrews 13, verses 7 through 9, it says the following. This is to a Hebrew congregation that is still struggling whether or not they should stick with Judaism and mix it with Christianity or not. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. You see, the context here is Jewish believers in Messiah who were told that what many are told today, that Jesus is a different God than the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament. Those that speak on behalf of God should always present a clear picture of who God is and not one that's remade to their own image. In fact, false doctrines are born out of an inconsistent view of God. Let me make the statement again. False doctrines are born out of an inconsistent view of God. What do I mean by that? If a person believes that God is all grace and overlooks sin, they will dismiss sin in their own lives at the risk of falling under judgment or chastening. Because that was something that was conveniently ignored by them. Whereas, if a person believes that God is a God of wrath, looking only to strike those who sin, they will live in consistent fear. Constant fear going against the very statement that is mentioned by the angels when Jesus first arrives, right? What's the words that are used? Fear not. Our view of God, believer, must be complete and consistent. In the days that you feel that he is only a God of wrath, remember his love and mercy. In the days that you feel that you're doing well and God is loving, remember his severity, severity as well, not just his kindness. We need to present a complete picture of who God is. And unfortunately, many Christians today paint only one side of him many times. Jesus is our Lord, believer, and Savior. He's not just our Savior who saves us from sin and says, go ahead and do what you want. He is our Lord and Savior. He is to be obeyed. He is to be followed. Jesus came to offer mercy and grace. And one day, he will return as judge. Completely consistent to who he is as God. Don't worship the version of Jesus you are more comfortable with. Some of us are very comfortable with the, with the God that always tells us everything we need to do, and we love living in fear. It's almost like a comfort to us that we're paranoid all the time. You need to be reminded that God is also a God of grace and loving, and he's long-suffering. So when you meet other brothers and sisters that are not struggling as you are, you have more grace to them. 
Maybe you're on the other side of that equation. Maybe you're the type of person that literally thinks God will give you a pass on everything. Oh, you know what? God hasn't done anything yet. So you give everybody else a pass because you want God to give you a pass. That's inconsistent as well. The Jesus that ate with sinners still called those same people to repentance. A lot of Christians are like, oh, well, Jesus ate with prostitutes and tax collectors. Amen! He didn't leave them then. He didn't go, woman and caught in adultery, go ahead and sin. Keep going. You're fine doing what you're doing. No, he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. The Jesus that called out fake piety was also gentle to the broken. Oh, it's easy to go after the fake pious people, right? The ones that think they have it all figured out. It's important to maintain that balance to be gentle with the broken. The Jesus that humbled himself, believer, but is exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, which version of Jesus are you trying to create in your mind? You need the whole picture. You need everything to be consistent with what Scripture says, to worship God correctly. Back in Malachi, he says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. God is saying, listen, I'm merciful to you here. I'm consistent to who I am. That is why it's important to realize that God is long-suffering, but there is an end to the long-suffering. God does not change who he is. He stays the same. How he deals with us may change because he has every right to show mercy where and how he chooses. We know that reminder in Romans chapter 9. God has every right to show mercy on who he will. But he does not change. His character never changes. He's not a God who became more wrathful or more loving over time. He's always stayed the same. Believer, the problem does not lie with God. The problem lies with us, with you and me. In Malachi 3, verse 7, here's what it says. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? When it says here that they have gone away, it essentially means that they turned away, they avoided, they cut themselves off from his ordinances. They separated themselves from what needed to be addressed. The nation of Israel from the beginning did not keep their end of the bargain, as we don't. We wonder where God is and just about every time, it's us separating from him. There are exceptions, as with the faithful in Scripture, for example, Elijah, Moses, some of the others. But for the most part, it's because we walked away. 
Believers, stop asking God for help when you flat out ignore him, his commandments, and fellowship with other believers. You want nothing to do with his people, and yet you want to worship the God that they serve. You want comfort in your sin, so you seek others that validate it. That is why people that have been burned by church folks find others that are as well and form their own community. You find them online all the time, by the way. Four more evangelicals that have been betrayed. And many, many of the things that have happened are truly damaging. I'm not arguing that they aren't. The truth is evangelical churches are filled with people that are just a few years away from leaving it all because of one major miscalculation. They put their trust in people, not God. Believer, find faithful believers as your example and follow God alongside them. Don't find the one that complains all the time, excuses sin all the time, thinks it's always everyone else's fault. Those are easy to find. Find faithful believers that will hold you to account on what God wants you to do and encourage you to keep going. The person that doesn't just point out your sin but helps you get out of that sin. Make sense? It isn't just the person that says, hey, you know, I see that you're struggling, brother, sister, and just points it out to you. But truly says, hey, here's, here's something I can help you with. Come, come join me. Let, let's walk together. I mean, it's very easy to point out everybody else's flaws. I mean, goodness gracious, you don't need to be a Christian to do that. The world does it all the time. And believer, it's not enough for you and I to go, well, you know what, I'm just being human. Messed up again. Realize that certain things, they truly break God's heart, and you need to take care of that. Return. Return to me, and I will return to you. That's what God says here. What a promise to the nation of Israel. That they were not too far gone. They could still come back. Believer, God will take you back. What's stopping you? But you don't know. God does. God does. If it's a problem in the church, then it needs to be addressed head on without avoidance. But don't wait for it to be perfect at a church to come back. That is not your standard. As Spurgeon says, if you want to find the perfect church as soon as you join, you'd ruin it. God wants you to come back, to repent, and turn back to him once again. Believer, if you've been hurt by others, and it's true, many of people in the church have been hurt by others, I need you to take your cue from Jesus, how he responds, not other believers who do not do things correctly. Jesus is to be your example in how you are to respond. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, we read this. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, 
nor was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus didn't go bad-mouthing other people deceitfully. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Think for a moment of all people on this earth that had the right to stand up for themselves, to respond in condemnation to everyone that did him wrong. Don't you think that would have been Jesus? The innocent, perfect Lamb of God left it to the Father to judge. Jesus had every right to respond the way that we do many times when our family and our friends abandon us. He had one of his closest friends betray him, essentially stab him in the back, if you will. Jesus willingly suffered on our behalf and left it to the Father to judge in his time on this earth. Now, mind you, the same Jesus who is now exalted will one day come back to judge himself. But that is all in due time. He bore our sins so that we would live for righteousness. And yet, that's not what many of us are living for, is it? Why do we live as Christians? Ask yourself, what is your motivation for living for God? Is it fear? Is it love? Is it comfort? What's your reason for wanting to serve God? And that could be different for all of us if we were to be honest with ourselves. Some of us are sheep that just don't want to listen to the shepherd. And you know why we don't want to listen to the shepherd? Because the other sheep are bothering us. I know you said this, God, but I really don't want to do that. I know your word says I need to treat this person this way, be kind, forgiving one another as Christ for my sake has forgiven me, but I don't know about that. Let me stew on this for a while, God. Let me get worked up over what happened over and over. God, don't you get it? Don't you see where I'm coming from? You see, the truth is some people think that they've matured as a Christian but still act childish with private tantrums when they don't get their way. Believer, when someone does you wrong, how do you respond? How you and I respond shows how mature we are as a believer. Some things are difficult to work through, aren't they? Some things are not so simple. They're not to be taken lightly. But if you want restoration, bring it before the leadership in the church. If you're saying, listen, I can't work this problem out, bring it to others who will help you work it out. What kills a pastor really is when you see relationships that have been severed for years and a simple please come talk to me would work. Let's work this out. Let's try to help the situation that's going on, the fractured relationships in the church. But no, we like to pretend they're not really there sometimes. Believer, in the early church, the widows were were neglected, and it was brought before the leadership. 
Like the stuff really happens in the church. Don't assume it doesn't. It was brought to the apostles' attention and the deacons were assigned to help. Let me, let me give you a clue from the Bible. The deacons in the church are there to help. Not just to pick up a few pieces of paper, though. That's something they can do too. They're there to help, brothers and sisters. Some things take time to work through. But don't completely abandon God, His Word, and His people. If you're watching this online, you haven't been to church in a while, we'd love for you to come join us. You don't need to come in here perfect and having it all figured out. But you should come back to the shepherd of your souls. In closing, my question to you and me is this. Are you away from God? Are you away from God? I don't mean are you watching this or are you going to church? That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, are you walking far from God? You see, the people were going through the motions in proximity, but still away from God. They essentially offered God junk that he was not pleased with. God wants you back if you are his child. So my, my question to you is this, what, what's stopping you? What's stopping you from coming back? Is it others that have hurt you? Is it the shame or guilt of sin that you've been dismissive or given up in fighting in your own life? Maybe it's because you feel like God has abandoned you and nothing you do ever seems to work out the way you wanted. God says to Israel and to us, Return to me, and I will return to you. God's arms are wide open. He will welcome us back. All we need to do is just like the publican did. Forgive me. You don't even have to say a lot of words. Be merciful to me. God doesn't need a long prayer. He needs a broken heart. Each one of us has areas that we need to make right with God. And they may be different for us than others. Believer, returning to God means that you will need to do some things differently. You may have to realign yourself with his perspective of sin in your life. What do I mean by that? Playing the stupid card as the priest did and avoiding the truth doesn't make it go away. Many believers play the stupid card. I didn't know God wasn't okay with this. Don't do that. It also may mean that you need to cut off certain relationships that are hurting your walk with God. But we need to reach out to everybody. We need to love everybody. Listen, if you know anything of Scripture and what we've been discussing, these other people pull them away from their God. That's what the text is saying. There's no, hey, go evangelize. Join them in their idol worship and come back and serve me. None of that is what's implied there. 
Israel had people pull them away from their God, and many of us do as well. That also may mean that you need to establish new habits, which will take some work. Believer, the Christian life is not on autopilot. You need to strive and struggle. There's work that needs to be done. Be careful with statements like let go and let God. Let go and let God when it comes to your burdens, yes. When it comes to fighting sin, you need to struggle with that by using his word. You may need to reestablish your relationship with others who are walking with God. Listen, believer, don't divorce yourself from the very people God put near you to help you in your walk with him. It's one of the worst things Christians can do. I'm walking far from God. I don't know. Nobody's there to help. And people are offering their help, and you're like, I'm ignoring that. I want nothing to do with those people. They're the very people God is sending in your life to help you, and you're refusing. It's essentially drowning in the sea, and someone's throwing you a life life preserver, and you're literally going, ah, I'll wait. Believer, we need to do better as a church in rejoicing when other sinners get things right with God. Some of us are almost upset that someone is making things right with God again because it seems so unfair. I mean, how many times are they going to go to God and say, I'm sorry? Well, hold on a second, believer. How many times do you go to God and say you're sorry? We are many times the Pharisee that snubs their nose at the publican who is crying out for mercy. Spurgeon said it best, I think, beloved, I will not be hard for you to learn. It will not be hard for you to learn. The angels of heaven rejoice over sinners that repent. Saints of God, will not you and I do the same? I do not think the church rejoices enough. We all grumble enough and groan enough. But very few of us rejoice enough. When we take a large number into the church, it is spoken of as a great mercy. But is the greatness of that mercy appreciated? Believer, one of the most encouraging things for a pastor such as myself to hear is that a follower of Christ that was walking astray came back to the Good Shepherd. Believer, I want to personally ask you to share this if this happens in your life because it is an encouragement to me as a pastor. If something that has been mentioned in a sermon or something that somebody has kind of addressed in your life and you went, you know what, this was wrong. Um, God convict me over this. And, and thank God that I've, I've seen this sin in my life and, and God's been working on this um, and I've repented. Let one of us know we ought to rejoice when people get things right with God. And I really hope and pray that it's more than just a good sermon, that truly the Spirit of God does something in your life and my life. That we can share with one another, hey, you know what, Pastor, this, the other week you brought up, it really stirred my heart. I really want to do differently for what God wants me to do in my life. I'm now going to take this step of obedience. 
I get it. Some things we don't want to tell everybody publicly. I get that. But can I ask as pastor, if God convicts you of certain things and God changes some things in your life, you let me know. I want to rejoice with you. Like, I really do. I don't want to assume that you're still struggling when you may have been freed. Does that make sense? I really want to rejoice with you, brothers and sisters, when God does miracles in our homes, when God changes things in our hearts. Believer, people would be more willing to hear our concern for their souls if they saw the brokenness that we ourselves reveal before God. Let's come back to him today. Let's make God, God in our lives again. Repent in the areas that he calls us to repent. And rejoice as he calls us to rejoice for the sinner that has repented and come back to him.